Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder from Israel and uh, I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit about, you know, he's he's quite a deal maker himself. I mean, he's done it multiple multiple times. So I think that, you know, I don't want to make all of you wait any longer. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Lior Elasari. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alejandro. Glad to be here. Originally from Israel, Lior, the the startup nation yeah, that's right. Uh, we love technology, so you know it's amazing how many how much technology actually stuff happens in Israel. So how how was life uh, growing up there? Um, it was great. I mean, we you know when I was young, it, it was we were a little bit behind on the U.S. I think now it's actually from technology it's way ahead. Uh, but it was great. You know, we were we were exposed to the very early age computers. Uh, you know, Commodores and Spectrum and all that stuff. And I was able to acquire a few and, and mess around with it and even write, you know, the early little robots with some uh, motors and stuff like that. So it was actually, I was exposed to technology from a very young age. And I'm re I really like that because I think Israel in some sense loved technology. So they always brought those in, uh, you know, to Israel as much as possible. And just out of curiosity, how do you think that, because I'm, I'm, I'm blown away with the innovation and with the startup mentality, the entrepreneurial, you know, mindset. Like, how do you think that the country has been able to develop this so well? Um, part of it is out of necessity. I think people don't realize, even from like our culture and things like that. You know, the drip irrigation was invented there, and because it was all desert, you know, they had to bring water, they had to bring land, even to to grow stuff. And um, you know, so innovation sort of, um, you know, follows necessity. But at the same time, I think it's, you know, a lot of the Israelis that, that I know that I've been around, um, they just they, they love creating things. It's really about creating and just moving and creating as much as possible. And for yourself, Lior, what do you think that really attracted you into the world of science and technology? Um, I don't know. I was very curious from a very young age about science, electronics. Um, you know, I've took apart tons and tons of different stuff, but you stuff. And again, part of it was necessity. I you know, could not afford a brand new TV or could afford a brand new VCR. So I would buy old ones that are broken and fix them. And then I had the TV and VCR and amazed my friends because nobody else could afford that. Um, so it was kind of great. And again, some necessity. And I love doing that. I love uh, creating and I love fixing and, um, you know, innovating. And in high school, you moved to the U.S. So what triggered this? 
Um, it was for my mom, actually. My mom is, a, is an entrepreneur. She loved creating as well. And Israel, um, you know, for women, it's a little bit harder to do it. And I think she felt very frustrated. So she wanted to move out to the U.S. And in the U.S., you actually had, um, you know, created a perfume store. Uh, in, in fact, um, it, I was working at the perfume store while I was at Hostbro. I mean, we, you know, running, uh, you know, like a multi-million dollar business. And she would still call me to go work at the perfume store to wrap gifts because she didn't really understand what this web thing and I didn't have an exit yet. And she's like, stop playing on, please come and help us in the business. So it was very frustrating, but I would go there, um, you know, help support uh, our company during Christmas while wrapping presents. So it was a lot of fun. That's really cool. So what, what did you learn about entrepreneurship from, from her, like growing up? Like what, what were you seeing that you liked and what were you seeing that you didn't like? Um, you know, so first of all, from an entrepreneurship, I think um, really that it, it ends up being a lot of hard work uh, and you really want to you really need to like it um, because it's it's going to be a lot of stuff that you're probably not going to like in some sense. And I always tell people, if they, you know, they want to do a startup or something like that. Uh, I tell them, like, do you, you know, make sure you really like it because about 50 percent of it, it's it's not going to be a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of frustrations up and downs and stuff like that. And if the other 50% you don't like, then it's just not going to work. You're going to give up. Uh, so choose something that you really like, very passionate about. And I think that's something that, that she had. And she was passionate about the business and so not necessarily just the, the, uh, the product that you're creating, but the business, creating the business, selling, solving, solving problems to other people, selling the stuff. Um, and I think that's what I liked about it, too. So I think that helps a lot because sometimes you know, the, the business aspects end up being frustrating and you really got to like that portion to move that forward. It's not about just creating a product. It's about creating a business, if uh, it might make sense. So then finally you go into college uh, and, and what, what would you want to study? What, what, what were you studying in college? So at first, actually, I went to Pierce College. It was a community college out here. Uh, just studied music for two years uh, before I decided that uh, I should do something else with my life and, uh, you know, do something else. Uh, more uh, more productive or something that will give me a better income. So I transitioned to computer science. Uh, but at the same time, actually myself and my co-founder, um, we were both actually fired from um, a, a, a PC store that I used to work on. I would fix PCs and things like that. Uh, and he said, hey, you know, we're creating this new company. Why don't you come and join us? Um, so this was back in uh, 95, I think somewhere around that. Um, very early on, Web was just starting so I went and joined them. Uh, it was him, uh, myself, and um, another partner, uh, Mark Afshari. And we actually, our first company was uh, Food Mood. It was basically the idea that we're going to go to stores and tell them, hey, you can advertise online. People will order things online, and we will fax you the order. Uh, and our first sales guy went out and, and tried to sell this and came back. He's like, look, nobody understands what I'm talking about. Nobody understands what's going on. What is this people buying online? And basically nobody bought it. Um, and we got really lucky because uh, Caesar's Palace, uh, who kind of saw that as more of a branding opportunity, said, hey, wow. This, by the way, this was like the first sort of shopping cart uh, that exists online. They said, wow, could you guys put all our forums in there? And they didn't really care about selling. It was more for them. I think it was a lot more about branding and putting all their forums online and saying, wow, we're innovative. Look, we have all our stuff online. Uh, and then we grew it from there. I uh, had other stores like Baskin Robbins and other uh, type of um, and stores, and as well as start hosting other customers and slowly just grew that and ended up being, um, I was end up being really engulfed in, in creating 
the 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 brand creating the the uh, the the hosting company. I was more involved in the technology side and, and how do we you know make this efficiently? We were the first ones who would have like virtualized uh, email servers and and um, and be able to have virtualized. IPs and virtualized web host uh, websites and things like that, where we can host it on one server and really, uh, you know, leverage that to to be profitable. Uh, and we just grew that, and like I said, in the end, ended up selling it to Verizon. And in the meantime, I was still going to school, but like you know, one class every year almost. So it took me seven years to finish my uh, undergrad. Got it. So this this uh, company that that you did, and this was HostPro, right? Yeah. So this is what HostPro. Got it. So HostPro was uh, ended up selling to to um, you guys sold in an all cash offer to Micron, correct? Yeah, correct. So we sold to Micron PC. Micron PC would would uh, actually created computers back then, and they wanted to get into this hosting business. And this was um, actually right in 1999. Um, they gave us a full cash offer. This was more cash than I ever envisioned. We've never built this business thinking that you know we'll become multimillionaires and and grow that uh, real big. And it was just amazing. We ended up selling it to them. Um, and it ended up being a really good move because right afterwards at 2000, we'll kind of know what happened. Uh, we know with everything kind of crashing, but uh, this wasn't predicted. We didn't think, we thought we would grow more and everything. And we were just, uh, you know, really happy with the outcome. And just out of curiosity, like how did the conversation happen? So how did they come to you and and how did you guys started to discuss, you know, all the way to, to the closing? What was that process like? Um, you know, just they, so I think they were looking at the time, they were looking for some, uh, you know, to get into the space, right? And a lot of companies sometimes um, when they're trying to get into the space, they go and look around which, uh, which companies are in this space and which companies they can buy and, uh, you know, grow that forward. Uh, compared to Earthlink, just you know, started doing some hosting and stuff like that, but they're doing a lot more on the uh, you know consumer dial-up side. Uh, there was Highway back then, and they were sort of the the top um, you know that were earning a lot more revenue. So I think they were looking for something that they can uh, grow into and, and buy something for. Back then, I think it was relatively cheap um, from what you know we could grow it into, but uh, but they went in and decided you know to go with us. Um, and we, yeah, like we talked to them a little bit about, um, you know, where, where this thing is going. And I think their vision really was to own the hosting space, grow that internally. And we, all of us really love that. Uh, we wanted to grow that. We, it was the first time that we actually would take in as well as a, a big infusion of cash into the company. Uh, like I said before, we never, um, we never raised any money. We grew all that company internally. And this was sort of not an investor in some sense, but finally we'll have a lot of resources to really uh, grow that. Very cool. So I think it was a good fit for us and we went ahead and went forward with the deal. So this acquisition, how, how big was it? Uh, so it was $20 million and uh, we were three partners and basically you know, split it in third almost, uh, minus the uh, <laughs> some of the bankers. Yeah. Um, and then... Um, you know, from there, I, I worked, I think, for them for about a couple of years, you know, trying to grow that. But uh, I, I came to understanding that, to the understanding that really was a little bit harder uh, to grow their their strategy at that time was to really just acquire more and more companies. Um, and as you acquire more companies, just culture fits and things like that just became a little bit more um, of uh, difficulties. And usually it, I think it's really hard to acquire a company. Um, and, and get that company really integrated 
together. Yeah. Uh, and I, obviously, you know, I wanted to create more stuff and things like that. So I ended up uh, quitting over there, trying to finish up school. Uh, and all of us pretty much kind of left, um, you know, that, that um, hosting, uh, basically left Micron. Uh, they ended up acquiring a couple more companies. Uh, one of them was Virtualis. Um, and then um, and then they they actually started doing pretty bad, just the things haven't been working too well for them. Yeah. And then one of my really good partners, Alex Kazarani, uh, they've asked him to come in. Be, I think initially they asked him to be the CEO. Um, we were doing another company at the time, and he went and helped them uh, basically just to be on the board and really helped them rebrand it. Uh, we were hosting web.com at the time. Uh, so it helped them actually acquire web.com, transition to web.com, and really grow to web.com, which is today. And just out of curiosity, how old were you when, when this deal happened? I think I was 21, 22 around that. Oh, my God. So what, what did you yeah. buy with all those millions in the bank? Any? I know, any yeah. <laughs> and I was still living with my mom, so I, you know, I okay. finally <laughs> was able to <laughs> go in and buy a... Well, hopefully you got her a nice dinner at least. You invited yeah, her for no, dinner or something. Good stuff. So what did you do next? So after that, uh, we started another company called KnowledgeBase. Uh, KnowledgeBase was a CRM solution. This is this was the first introduction to um, to sort of AI, where we had this uh, autonomous agent that was able to search uh, through tons of documents and give you relevant information. And we were selling this to businesses. Now, unlike HostPro, which was more of a recurring revenue type of business. This was more of a direct sell where we had to go out and sell. It took almost a year-long sales cycle. Um, you know, integrating into an enterprise-level kind of company it just ended up taking a long time and uh, a lot of different, um, you know, the different options that we had to come up with. Uh, but ultimately, you know, we kind of grew it, but it kind of limited the growth uh, on there. We we had a couple of investors, but it wasn't. Um, you know, the outcome I think was pretty big. I, don't get, I can discuss it so much, but uh, we ended up selling it to Talisma, and uh, we, you know, we did pretty well on that. Not as not as much as we, we I think, would have all liked to. Uh, and at the same time, I think this is where Salesforce actually was just starting. And one of the things I think I regret was really understanding this, um, you know, this cloud space and moving toward that. I think a lot of people were very resistive and uh, Salesforce sort of brute forced their way, just you know, offering a lot of um, free stuff and or really have really cheap rates to, to build that up. Uh, and basically, um, you know, Salesforce was a CRM as well, but uh, was able to really build that out. And um, I think that's one thing that we might have missed over there. So I guess from, from this experience, what was your biggest learning? Um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, just selling a product as opposed to a service um, is a lot more difficult. And I knew that I actually wanted to more sell services than a product. Because once you sell the product, uh, I think the it's up to the customer to really make sure he uses it. Where when you sell a service, uh, they really hold you up more to it. You know, when you sell the product, if they don't like it, they will just not sort of buy it again. But uh, when you sell a service, you're continuously interacting with the customer. So I think my biggest lesson from there was that I really wanted to be more on the service side um, and in selling services as opposed to just like one time a product and, you know, wash my hands and say thank you. So so this was obviously your, your second acquisition. So, I mean, now yeah. you are a, a deal maker. So when it comes to yeah. acquisitions at, at this point, what was what 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 was that you know like I would say um, 
the key factors that you that you saw that really were the critical ones in order to get a really good deal done? Um, you know, one of the things we've always sort of done is we, I think we've never kind of looked at what the outcome is going to be, but what how we wanted to build the business and really concentrate on building the business and moving that forward. And I think it always played in a deal. So when we had, you know, a deal coming in and, um, you know, for this one, I think I believe we went through some investor bankers. I forgot where they were to go in and because um, we knew we wanted to move on from this company. Um, so it was a little bit different, but we were able to talk about the business in terms of the growth, in terms of where we wanted to take it up next and how we were thinking of growing as opposed to, hey, you know what, we just want to offload this business. So we've never really created a business to go and sell it. It sort of became a, a secondary you know, part of it, which I think made a, a huge difference in the deal because it allowed us to really talk about uh, the opportunities of the business as opposed to somebody who's kind of tired of the business and wants, you know, wants to get out, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And then after this, you actually went on and, and you started you know, probably one of your biggest exits uh, to date, yeah. Edgecast. So, yeah. so how do you come up with the idea of Edgecast? Um, so, you know, we, again, we talked about many different ideas, my partner and I, um, and again, he also loves technology and we were actually, by, by now, on almost every company, we sort of not only acquired, uh, capital, but we also acquired great partners. So for example, Phil Goldsmith, who was our first sell guy at, uh, HostPro was now a partner at, at KnowledgeBase is now a partner at, um, at Edgecast, um, uh, James Siegel was actually uh, part of another company that when Micron went in and bought, we met him through there. So we were at the same time building a really good team with very, you know, great talent. And uh, Jay Sakata, same thing, you know, uh, helped us actually um, uh, back at HostPro and then we brought him uh, back in at, at KnowledgeBase. So, so we were really able to build a, a good team who then we talked about together, you know, where, what are we passionate about, where we want to go with, um, and in the past two, what we've done is it sort of looked at the major players in a particular market and said, hey, you know what, we could do better. We can actually improve this. Um, we've always gravitated to technology. I actually always wanted to do something with robotics as well. But uh, back then, every time we talked about it, just really difficult to have the business model work um, with robotics, uh, especially back then. So we ended up sticking to what we know best, which is more of the web. And the um, uh, uh, Edgecast, which was a content distribution network, almost went as an evolution of hosting, right? It was basically now a hosting on another level where you're hosting customers on many, many servers across the world as opposed to one server in, in one spot. So we felt like we all knew that very well. We could grow that um, and move that. And one of the things, the challenge that we had in there right away was that Akamai, who's been there for doing that for almost 15 years, had a lot of patents, a lot of very, um, very direct ways in which they were doing things. And we had to go and basically reinvent how CDN is done uh, and we reinvent a whole new set of um, algorithms and, and exactly how you forward uh, traffic across the, the, you know, this network and be a lot more efficient. And we're able to actually beat them on efficiency in the way we were doing it. Very cool. And just for the people listening, CDN Content Delivery Network. So, so then for, for this business, how did you guys end up making money? What was the monetization uh, model? 
So, um, you know, we've looked at various um, models on there. In fact, uh, Amazon started uh, at some point, you know, entering this business and really going very basic. But the idea there is that you're selling bandwidth um, at the end of the day and you're selling bandwidth that is distributed. So, you know, the more customers use you across the web, um, the more bandwidth you sell. However, that became a commodity pretty quickly. Right. Um, there were other companies that were doing the same thing. And now we have to differentiate ourselves and start selling more features and more value added services. Uh, so, for example, WAF, like its web application firewall. So not only we are um, uh, we were protecting or not protecting, but we were uh, delivering your website faster, but we we're also protecting it. So our servers would look at uh, all the data that's going in and out. Um, out of your origin, out of your server that's sitting all the way at the end. And we can detect intruders. We can detect uh, people trying to hack, people uh, trying to, um, you know, steal information and alert you or block those depending on what rules you wanted to do. So we're able to offer more services and that's what we end up doing. We were also for some of the, remember one of the early, early services that we offer that really I think didn't exist out there was uh, for companies like um, e-commerce that are selling um, software that wanted to make sure that when you buy the software, only one person can download it, uh, only one person can uh, use it. Um, and, and basically, we're able to tag the software and deliver it through our network uh, in such a way that had a, a strict key that they could use without them having to worry about it on their origin and how they protect their origin. So again, so that's one of the services we're able to do. Um, and then on top of it, like I said, is being able to uh, transform the the way the web works by delivering the data um, to be as close to the um, you know as close to you as possible. And really, that's because you can't beat the speed of light. And even though you have fibers, let's say from here to China, if you're trying to view a video uh, from the U.S., it will still be pretty slow because speed of light for people is still very slow. Uh, and if you have any kind of buffering, any kind of issues on your website, uh, usually you'll move on. So in order to to speed that up and to um, to make that faster, you have to have a server that's sitting closer by. So th so that really encompasses the whole network. And then for monetizing it, you know, again, it became part of it was uh, just based on you know pure um, bandwidth and how much bandwidth you move through our network. And, and other portions were based on other services like the WAF, the Web Application Firewall. Uh, token authentication, which was part of that uh, delivery for, um, you know, executables and things like that. And obviously now, you know, things were different because you had two exits under your belt. So I'm sure that at this point, yep. investors were literally knocking on your door and, and throwing money at you. So so what were some of the critical <laughs> factors that you were looking into partners? Because I, I believe that you raised quite a bit of money for this company and you also started raising quite early too. Yeah, we did. I mean, we raised from the get-go. Uh, you know, one of the things with this particular company is that it required a lot of capital up front. Uh, so you had to raise more money uh, in order to compete because, you know, we can't compete if we had one server sitting there. It wasn't, you know, back in the old days, we could have one server and, uh, you know, because nobody was on the web. But nowadays, you really have to have servers all over the world. And that takes a lot of infrastructure, a lot of um, setup and things like that. Um, I remember we had a lot, a lot of discussions of how much money we're going to collect, how much money we're going to, you know, do it. And it's always like the question, right? Do you uh, take more money and have a smaller chunk of a pie, but build a bigger pie? 
Um, or you got to be careful with that because you could end up, um, you know, raising a lot. In fact, uh, one of the companies, one of the people we've, we've talked to before um, ended up raising, uh, this is back, back in the day where a Micron, um, so when Micron PC was going around buying different companies, I was involved in their diligence and going around and looking at different companies and kind of helping them decide which ones they should buy, which ones they shouldn't. And what happened was we found out one company that they end up raising so much money that in order for them to sell the company and for the founders to actually make money, not the investors, but for the founders, um, it was really, they would have to double for really what they're worth. And just nobody was, was buying that. It was very difficult for that. Um, and obviously the investors would have made money, but the founders basically worked there right for almost 10 years without getting a penny uh, if they did that. So, so there's always that balance, right? Where you have to decide how much money you actually raising uh, versus how much you're willing to give up and making sure that you're actually using that money productively, right? Actually using the money for growth and, and creating a bigger pie. Because if you don't create a bigger pie, uh, you end up losing them on that deal. So, so to, to recap that then, Lior, what do you think about um, raising all the money that you can get or um, raising you know, the money that you need. What are, what are your thoughts on that? So, and I think that really what it comes down to is you should set yourself goals, right? Because if you think about it, if you knew exactly what's going to happen uh, in seven years um, and you can get it and you can convince, uh, you know, um, an investor that the company will be worth, you know, X amount, you can already what percentage and you could raise it right there and use that money and, and grow that. The problem is it becomes almost impossible to predict, you know, seven years or five years, let's say, for an exit. Um, and it's even almost become very, very difficult to even predict the next year, right? Obviously, you know, when we work on financial models and, and show it to investors and things like that, the way I see it, it's really more of a proof of how the company would operate and how we're thinking of monetizing it and building a story versus what exactly is going to happen in, you know, the next year. And we're going to work really hard on achieving that. But things happen so much and things change so much, especially in the first couple of years, uh, because really in the first couple of years, you're trying to find a market fit. You're trying to adjust. You want to pivot. You want to be nimble. So then the question is, is how much do you raise? And I think it really comes down to, you know, to, to set up your goal, let's say, for the next you know, 12 to 18 months and raise for that amount, knowing that things will change later on. And then you can make another decision. So you would want to raise, I think, a little less or or you want to raise as much as you need to get to that next goal. If you raise too much, you end up giving too much value. And if you raise too little, you don't end up getting to the goal, which is really difficult. I mean, it's easier said than none, but uh, but that's the way I, I kind of think about it. And therefore, you really have to um, figure out, uh, you know, how much to raise. I, I remember, you know, there was a little Silicon Valley episode where, uh, you know, the guy talks to another guy and he's like, you know, um, one of the things that I learned is that you don't have to raise as much. And the other guy that had a company and like really lost everything was like, wow, you mean that was an option? So I do think you have to really, really watch out how much you raise. But at the same time, it does help, right? It gives you the capital to grow. You just have to make sure you are using that capital for growth uh, and create a bigger chunk. So you so everybody wins. Of course. So I guess for for Edgecast, how much how much capital that you guys raised in total? Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think it ended up being like close to 80 million. I think the last one was like 50 
million, I think, or a hundred, something like that. I remember the number right in front. I think the last one, um, you know, at the beginning we did a series A, I think it was around 10 mil, then I'll have to look that, I forget the numbers, but around the 1500, somewhere around that. Yeah, but you guys did an A, a B, a C, and a D round, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Got it. So, so obviously here, this is the time where you really take it to the next level when it comes to, to financing compared to the previous experiences, no? So in terms of fundraising, what, what did you learn about fundraising? Yeah, so it's 74 million uh, total. Um, so, so for fundraising, in, in fact, the D round um, was really interesting because we raised it and right afterwards, pretty very close right afterwards, that's when Verizon came in and bought us. Um, and one of the things we really learned from that is that the timing is really important. Uh, because often, you know, like when investors, they, they want to, you know, they're not doing this for 2x. They really want to get 10x right on their money. And one of the issues is that if you don't get that timing right, and we actually sort of had that uh, at Edgecast, then it could become a, a big problem, right, later on. So, for example, our, our Series D investor, um, one of the issues was that, you know, initially the first offer that Verizon gave us, they wouldn't have made um as much now they were only there for like six months and still would have been a great turnaround time right they didn't have to wait um here but they wanted to hold on um and you know in some sense it ended up being for the best because verizon ended up giving us more money but it was also riskier right because we could have lost that deal uh because of that uh, so it really comes down to negotiation and trying to get everybody aligned everybody on board uh, and my partner, you know, Alex Casaranos did a, a great job um, in making sure everybody's aligned uh, on the outcomes that they're looking for. So, um, so really, you know, from the board, uh, I think, you know, managing it and making sure that uh, everybody is is sort of on the same page, or at least guiding them to get toward the same page, I think is really important because then, because you're going to get into these kind of issues, like I said, like you know, that one investor that is like, hey, you know, I want to. I want to hold on. Um, it's, you know, because they, they, they went in right with the mind frame that we're going to grow this even bigger. We're going to get to a much bigger outcome. And we could have, right. We, we really um, had that potential to grow this and move that in a, in a completely um, in a much bigger direction. Right. And that's why we ended up raising actually quite a bit uh, plus took a loan. So the, the amount I think ended up being close to 50 million that we had now uh, for expansion. And that uh, by itself was great, but we didn't end up expanding it because we ended up selling it right away, right? So, so like I said, that's the same thing with initially what you asked me, like how much money do you raise? I think that all comes down to it because at any point in time, uh, you know, you could have an exit. Somebody could come in and, and buy you. And if you don't really understand the, you know, the outcome or the exits or where you're thinking you're going to go, you might end up raising too much in which case, you know, that investor that was, let's say, only there for a few months, end up getting a huge chunk taking away because they just took away that chunk from you uh, and you end up giving it away. So, uh, and again, it's very difficult, right, to predict and you never know exactly what's going to happen. But the better job you could do at that, I think the more, the better the outcome it is for founders. And I think often for founders, you know, we're so engulfed into building the business and creating the business. Um, and I feel like sometimes we're willing to give up more um, from our stake just because we're 
um, you know, we're really there to build a business as opposed to uh, necessarily make money. And I think that's sort of the right approach that you need to take. But at the same time, you know, you do want to get a, a better outcome. So I think you want to watch out for that. Yeah. You know, I remember that uh, Bill Grosh uh, did, you know, uh, a TED talk on, on, you know, his portfolio of companies. And he took a look at the data and what determined the success of them. And 40, over 42% of the success was timing. So um, I think that timing, you know, is, is critical when, when doing this. So I guess in, in, in Edgecast, so, so Verizon came to the picture and then there's a deal that happens. So how big was this deal? This was the biggest to date, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was close to $400 million. Uh, it was an amazing wow. outcome. Yeah, I think one of the biggest also in LA. Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah. uh, so did it take a long time from start to finish in the process? Uh, yeah, around seven years, right? From that you're talking about for the company. No, for for Verizon, for this deal to really oh, come to for fruition. that deal. No, it, it actually went pretty quickly. I mean, again, from that there was this one little hiccup for the negotiation uh, and trying to get it. You know, their first offer us uh, four fifty, which that's what um, actually all the news and all that stuff kind of brought up. Uh, and then we had that investor that kind of held that up, so just going back and forth. So you know, it was a few months, but it wasn't uh, a tremendous long time. Cool. And then after this, you were not done. So you went and, and you did, you know, you went at it again as a founder. You founded Invia Robotics, which is your latest uh, venture. So so tell us about this one. Sure. So, you know, so, so basically I was trying to finish up my PhD right at that same time in robotics. And uh, again, really, really wanted to start something in robotics. And I felt like now I was sort of in a position where you know, I was just going to invest my own money. I knew that, you know, the 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 um, the product and the the market is very very new, and some of the markets, you know, might take a long time to um, materialize or to actually get an exit. Because, you know, all the previous businesses, we always had somebody else. We had a we had a pretty well defined market uh, that we knew where we were competing, how we can pr even pricing and figuring out the marketing and all that stuff. We knew, just knew we had to do better, but we had an example, a template for what that looks like. Uh, here with the robotics, there, there is no market yet. There is a lot of the stuff is brand new. And I knew that was going to be a huge challenge. So I initially started this thinking, okay, I'm just going to invest my own money. I'm just going to start this up. I know if investors want to join. And we had a lot of you know friends and family and investors that knew my exits before. So they were able to give us you know some money. And in fact, I didn't want to take as much, but it felt like I sort of obligated at that point to take some of it. Um, and we basically looked at the various markets. I knew I wanted to do something with robotics. We looked at various markets out there uh, and really decided that, you know, I didn't want to be in the toy business. I didn't want to create a toy or something like that. Uh, and even I talk about toys in terms of robots that, you know, might look like they're doing stuff. There's a lot of robots out there that you sell for the home and things like that, that, uh, that don't really solve a problem. Um, so I, I put them sort of in the toy category because people will still buy them. It's amazing. It's cool. But at the same time, you know, the problem is actually not solved. Uh, and we wanted to also not be in a, in a huge R and D type of, uh, you know, uh, business where really all I'm building is uh, aqua hire or building a company that, uh, just is just a bunch of engineers and there's no real product there. Uh, so when we looked at different markets, you know, the self-driving cars really intrigued us, but. I felt like this is going to be an R&D project for at least 10 years or so before you could really sell that, right? You, you, would, you would build a company and the exit there would really be, at, uh, you know, selling it to another company. Um, 
in there because it'll just require a tremendous amount of money and tremendous amount of resources to get something like that off the ground. Uh, when we looked at the e-commerce, I actually went in and talked to some of my customers uh, from Edgecast because we were hosting their website and went in and looked at their warehouses, saw what they're doing then before designing anything and looked at what problem can we solve for them. And we noticed all of them had the same exact um, issue, which is labor. They're like, please, please help us. We can't find the labor. This is really difficult for us. Uh, Amazon, in some sense, is brute forcing the problem. They're spending uh, a lot of money. We went, you know, I looked at their financials even, and they're spending billions of dollars on brute forcing this problem. And nobody else um, could really keep up with them um, because of that. So they really needed help. And this is where we thought, wow, this is a really great opportunity. One is because it's a, you know, it's finally something that we could build and actually have uh, working as a product in a very short time. So it's not going to be years into the future before we can really, you know, sell this thing. And the other thing is there's a huge need there. Um, you know, one of the things people don't realize is that, you know, when you click add to cart, you basically have a personal shopper that's going out and shopping for you. And most people don't want to pay for that, um, which really makes it an amazing, amazing um, opportunity for automations, right? Because that, that's where you could leverage that piece. So the idea for us for robots really is uh, the ability to adapt and the ability to get into different environments without having to rebuild a machine. So if you think about it, uh, one of the reasons that we're doing self-driving cars or people are working on self-driving cars, instead of changing the roads, we can change the roads and have this problem solved, but it's going to just require a tremendous, tremendous amount of uh, capital to do that. So instead, we're augmenting the car to work on the existing roads, our existing infrastructure. And we felt we could do the same thing in the warehouse, being able to provide a robot that will go into an existing warehouse and basically uh, provide and, and really offer a huge solution for our customers. Now, one of the things that came right about is a business model. When I looked at the various businesses out there that existed for selling these type of automations, all that really ended up being is selling a product. And I knew from Edgecast that uh, from KnowledgeBase that I did not want to do that. I, I really wanted to do it as a service. Um, and also I felt like it didn't really make sense, right? For a company to own, let's say, 100 robots or 200 robots, they become part of the robot business. Uh, they have to figure out how to use it. They have to figure out how to optimize it. And that's not what their core competency is. So this is where we also came up. And I think we were actually one of the first ones, too, in this space to do robotic as a service um, from very early on to decide, like, look, we're going to be a robotics partner. We're going to provide the automation. We're going to provide it as a service where we're going to deal with all the issues uh, with the optimization and really own the um, productivity of the robot. So we get paid based on the productivity, not based on just the product itself. Got it. Very, very cool. And and how 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 did you guys go about capitalizing this? Because obviously at this point, you know, you've uh, you were able to to even self self finance this thing. So why did you decide to to go and get others? So one of the things that we noticed was that it, you know the the opportunity for um, you know market share and really grabbing a lot of market uh, was really large. And it's because it's it just really nobody. If you look at uh, anybody who really uses any robotics in their warehouse, uh, Amazon is really the only one right now. Uh, I think there's roughly, they're estimated to be at about 200,000 robots uh, and only 30% of the warehouses are actually automated. 
everybody else is just using either old style technologies or just using people, uh, manual labor um, as much as possible. And they are struggling with that and really having a hard time. This is why I think a lot of people don't realize one, tar- you know, one Target or Walmart or anybody just you know, compete against Amazon. And the reason for it is it's not that easy. Getting that technology, getting um, being able to do this efficiently without losing money is a big deal. Amazon had a huge break on losing money for a very long time. In fact, a lot of their stuff is also financed through AWS, uh, where a lot of our customers don't have that secondary source. So you're trying to figure out how to really, really solve this problem. And, you know, and, and in our mind, real technology has to be it. Um, the idea is that you're going to have one person being able to pick uh, orders for thousands of uh, customers at the same time. You can't be in one-to-one. It's not going to work. So when we looked at the, that market, we decided, well, you know, we're going to have to raise. Now, we didn't really, uh, for, for raising, for this company, it actually uh, was one of the easiest um, uh, raise possible. And I think part of it is the market, part of it, robotics. Uh, but we had a uh, really great opportunity. So Upfront Ventures, uh, who is in L.A., uh, heard about us. And, uh, you know, we, it was a very quick time to a term sheet because, you know, we, we were sort of we, we weren't planning on raising at that time. But, you know, we thought that we could really uh, get a big boost. And we saw like a much bigger I mean, I still see there's a huge opportunity here for robots. So, the, so that pie that I was talking about. Um, there's a, a really, really large pie uh, that you can grow this to. Uh, so we, you know, decided to bring that on. And then actually within um, a few months uh, after, almost uh, almost a year, uh, we ended up raising Series B um, uh, from these two. So overall, we've raised about 30 million so far. Um, and, you know, we have a great runway and it really helped us uh, grow the company and, and really take it, take on more customers because, um, you know, if, if we weren't doing the robotic as a service and really trying to disrupt that portion of the of the economy or the the the, um, the market, um, then probably we would have been fine because you you know we're basically are being uh, uh, financed by our customers. But doing it as a service really means that we're taking on that risk. We're taking on that opportunity um, for us for the for the longer term, and we're basically selling that service. To our customers, but building the robotic fleet, creating all those uh, takes more capital. So that's why in the end we decided, you know what, we really want to pursue uh, robotic as a service. We think that is the right approach here, and we're going to grow that. And Very so we ended up raising. Um, and in fact, we just saw—I don't know if you saw—one of our competitors, which is amazing. You know, just sold their business for uh, four hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, they're about a year uh, older than us. And, you know, from a revenue perspective, from a uh, company perspective, it's nowhere near to the amount of effort that we had to do back at Edgecast, you know, to get close to, to 400, where, you know, with them uh, getting it to 450. And it just shows, I think, to the market on how much it, there's a need out there uh, for this, for these products, for these solutions um, to be out there. I think they got 60x multiple on their revenue or something like that. So you know, really unheard of, right, uh, for that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's it's amazing, Lior, like the uh, trajectory that you have as a founder. I mean, all all these different companies and, and initiatives that you've been involved in. And, and we all know that the that the journey of an entrepreneur is, is you had, it has the ups and downs, you know, and it also has the gray days. So I guess now as, as you're looking back at, at this incredible journey that, that you've been in, 
uh, as a founder, what would you say that probably has been the biggest breakdown that has led to perhaps the biggest breakthrough? I think the, the philosophy that I go on and I talk to my team a lot about this is you want to embrace failures. And like you said, there are ups and downs. And I think in this country, in some sense, we actually don't embrace failures. When we look at companies and we look at success, you just look at the top. Um, and if you look at the journey of an entrepreneur, right, when you first started, you're very optimistic. You're like, wow, this is amazing. I'm going to, you know, this is going to grow in two seconds and everybody's going to want to invest in my business and all that stuff. Then you finally started and reality kicks in and problems and everything. And you just usually have failures after another, failures after another. And it just, and the idea, I think the way I kind of see too from, you know, raising money is, is basically being able to control these failures, finance these failures and understand, learn from them, adjust, pivot, you know, and, and move forward. Um, but I think often people don't see that, right? So if you look at the bottom, you're just constantly creating, failing, creating, failing, creating, failing, and slowly adjusting that till you finally, you know, get to that success point. And a lot of people don't see that road that you're just constantly stumbling, constantly trying to, you know, to, to figure out the market fit, figure out pricing to figure out. In fact, this company is probably one of the most challenging companies I've done just because, you know, even right now we're talking about pricing. How do we price this? How do we market this? How do we, and there's nothing that we can go on and copy from there's, you know, that doesn't exist. So, so you're going to fail in those and you're going to create those and you're going to, you know, fix them and move forward. So I think the biggest, biggest take is to just embrace that process, understand that process, understand as soon as you're going to do it, it's going to fail. You're going to fix it and you're going to move forward. Um, and I think a lot of people that, uh, end up, um, you know, sort of giving up, I think it's because of that. It becomes overwhelming. They don't think that, wow, you know what? Uh, I, when I saw this company, I thought it's going to be a huge success and it will be right away, but that's not the case. I think you probably talk to any entrepreneur, talk to any business and everything like that and ask them about their failures. They will go through and list all, you know, just, they can go on forever listing the failures. Um, so I really think, you know, if it, it, going into a business expecting that you're going to fail and you're going to fix it, and you're going to move forward. Uh, I think it's really, really powerful because it, because it can get very daunting, right? If you don't expect that and you keep getting hit by another, by another, by another, by another, you feel like, wow, you know, this is, am I never going to be able to do this? As opposed to understanding that that is part of the process. That's when you learn, that's where you can fix. That's where you can learn what you need to do and move forward. I feel like most people are very, in, in, uh, you know, uh, are, are all creators in some sense. It can all figure out, you know, one piece or another. It's, it's not about trying to, um, you know, the, every problem can be solved in some sense, but it's about solving the problem, right? I think a lot of times we just end up getting depressed and not solving that problem. That's where I see, you know, where other entrepreneurs having a hard time with. It's really about knowing that they can solve the problem. They just have to embrace that process. Got it. That makes absolute sense. So I guess the um, Lior, one of the questions that that I always ask the the folks that I have on the show is, if you had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, and, and especially you know knowing what you know now, no, after all these companies and and exits, what would be that one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business, and why? That's, that's a really interesting question, especially for me, because I feel like I love learning. I love that failures and I love moving that forward. And people often ask me that, but you know, I, I have a lot of advice for myself, 
but I wouldn't want to give it to me because I would want to experience that failure. People often told me those things that, you know, and people try to explain me. And, and like I said, like with that failure thing, right. To, to just keep on going and to just embrace that process. Uh, I would have told that to myself, but I probably wouldn't have listened. Right. And I was just still going, I still done it, and I still stumbled and, and continued with that. So, so I think it's, it's really hard for me to say, you know, what advice, but like I said, from, for other people, you know, the, the advice is, um, first of all, do something you're very passionate about and you like doing, because, uh, like I said, 50% of it, it's going to be daunting. It's going to be failures. It's going to be very, very difficult. Um, so, so you want the other piece to be rewarding for you so you can keep going. Uh, and I think finding that is very difficult. And again, I would tell that to myself very early on. I wish I, you know, again, I was fairly young when I stumbled across it, but even before, like in high school and things like that, I wish I would have done things sooner. Um, but I don't think I would have listened to myself. So I, I don't know how to tell you. Very good. I mean, I think that being passionate, you say, is number one, because especially during the early days, at least 95% of the days is, they're like pretty, pretty awful. I mean, it's just like yeah. putting fire after fire, you know, like crazy hours, ramen noodles, you know, if, if it's, you know, first rodeo and, you know, you, you need to sustain the operation. So, so I'm right there with you. So, so Lior, so for yeah. the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, I think you can um, email me directly, you know, Lior at nvrobotics.com if you have any questions or something like that. Can't promise I'll get to all the emails, but. Uh... Amazing. Well, I'm sure that for the folks that, uh, that listen, you know, all the way to here, you know, probably they're, they're going to really know you well. So, uh, so that would be yeah. cool. And then also any, any social media handles, uh, Lior, that you use? So Twitter at Lior Elizari. Okay, fantastic. All right. Well, sounds like a plan. So uh, I think that many, many people are going to be, you know, wondering, oh, maybe, you know, I reach out to Lior or not. But but in any case, Lior, I have to say that it has been a pleasure and an honor to have you on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so, so much. No problem. Thank you very much, Alejandro. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.